This is Paul Ingalls, co-founder and producer of the Peace Talks radio series. In 2022, we proudly delivered our 20th season of programs about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. It's been our mission since shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. in 2001 to maintain a forum for discussion about how all of us can cultivate a culture of peace in our own lives and in our world. Our conversations have been with people who are doing the work for peace in their own ways, in their own circles, or with people who have thought and spoken and written about the pursuit of peace. On this program, we'll offer up samples of programs we delivered in that 20th season, starting with correspondent Senjan's dive into ways to share space in our own living situations with others, our families, our roommates, our housemates. In a moment, you'll hear community facilitator Maria Silvia, but first, Sen talks with Carl Stayart, the founder of several successful intentional communities. What makes conflict different in shared living situations for me just has to do with the fact that when we're living together, we're exposed to much more of each other's lives, not just in terms of sheer time, which is certainly also a factor that we're bumping up against each other, perhaps more hours of the day in some cases, but perhaps more significantly is we're encountering each other in more intimate ways often and in in our more intimate aspects of our lives. So for myself, I find that when we're encountering each other in the kitchen, when we're encountering each other around our leisure time, there's a different sort of quality of how we want all of ourselves perhaps to be a bit more welcome in an intimate space, in a shared living space. When we live together with other people, particularly if we do so over a longer period of time and we develop a bit more closeness with each other, we begin to reactivate family pattern dynamics. Like we begin to have the same kind of attachment distress or attachment bonding and that both has the the plus sides and some of the challenges that we had with our family of origin. So the classic example is one that I, I often go back to is it's like the dirty dishes and how often that becomes this sort of lightning rod in so many communities because our core childhood reactions to how do we care for the common space, whether it's cleanliness, whether it's noise, can bring up a lot. My daughter is 20 years old, and she moved in last year for the first time with a friend in college, and I could see the train wreck ahead. (laughs) They had a good relationship, lots of things in common, and despite my guidance to my daughter, they did not talk about agreements around the shared space. So this is very typical of how we do this type of relationship, right? They're moving into a shared space, whether it's with a romantic partner or a friend. We just rely on good intentions. Or being able to go with the flow and... (laughs) Yes, and hope for the best. Instead of having conversations about needs and how to get those met, that, of course, requires self-awareness that if you're going to live with someone else, you have awareness of what's important to you in your living space. And if you're used to living just with your family of origin or by yourself, you maybe never had to think about it. But there are things that are very particular to each of us as to what we need in our space. 
in terms of stuff and cleanliness and beauty and other beings like plants or animals. And it's a big mistake not to talk about those things. There are more complex things like noise level and administration of money, if that's an issue too. So preemptive talks about this are so powerful. And yet, at least in the societies that I navigate, people are so reluctant to do that. We are clinging on to, we just need to find the right person. And if we find the right person, we don't need to go through all that mundane unpleasantness. And I think that we'll have to wake up from that dream very soon because it's not working very well. We are just so addicted to this idea of romance and the one and the person who's make it all perfect. And my goodness, <laughs> we, just, we just land crashing from that one. Maria Silvia community facilitator and parent. You can hear all of St. John's excellent conversations on better sharing space practices in the August and September 2022 editions of Peace Talks Radio. Find them and all of our programs dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. That's where you'll find the full programs from all the excerpts we play on today's show. You can hear much, much more from all of them at peacetalksradio.com find our 2022 season rundown there. Next, an excerpt from correspondent Yamini Ranjan's moving exploration of teen breakup violence, which was centered around the experience of the parents of a teenager named Lauren Dunn Astley, who was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. We hear from her father, Dr. Malcolm Astley, who set up a foundation in her name and an educational workshop he called Loved to Death to go into schools in hopes of preventing such tragedies in the future. A psychiatrist friend said, uh, all our relationships end in uh, breakups, divorce, or death. And that is the hard, hard course of being a human that we don't quite let people in on so that we have the strength to face it together. And we need to help them right from the start. And it's so important that we have safe places to grieve supportively together, to treasure what still exists, to treasure what we remember. And these are part of the skills that I'm trying to help ensure partly through our foundation that we teach our youth much sooner in life. Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund educates teens about many at-risk emotions. Shame is perhaps the most important of them. Often as described by Brené Brown, people think of themselves as mistake, not as having made the mistake. This emotion cuts across all sorts of isms as Malcolm talks about and often shows up in breakups. To do a shame analysis for every person would be a good part of the tasks. And it goes back again to shame and to people striving to feel valued. Each of us wants to be seen as effective and lovable. And when we don't feel that way, pain can seep. And uh, someone recently used the term corrosive shame. We need a certain amount of shame to become civilized, but it's very easy for it to get out of hand. An emotion, I call it one of the at-risk emotions, and uh, there, there may be 12 of them that I think we need to do a much better job of focusing on helping our young people understand them, to name them, 
and, and to know how to cope with them, both in themselves and in others. And it, it shows up in breakups. I, and I, I believe it was operating in uh, my daughter's death. Do you think along with the kids, the adults should also be given some sort of a training in understanding the signs, finding the resources and how to communicate with a child who is showing signs of distress and dating woos? I think approaching young parents uh, early on about these matters is an, an, a very important road we can go down together. With our approach, we're trying to build a skyscraper from the roof on down. That doesn't work very well, but it's what we can do for now. So our curriculum is aimed at one high school class period, the love to death curriculum aimed at juniors and escalation developed by the One Love Foundation. They tried to develop it for college and university students who who affirmed it, but said we needed to hear it before we got here. Videos, stories, comics, love to death workshop. All these methods are wonderful and work efficiently in conveying the message. One thing that has really intrigued me whenever I switch on the TV and watch any sports is the aggressiveness of the sports. I asked Malcolm about what the role of macro factors such as win lose culture in sports and school and even life in general in our society has on the work of Lorinda Nasley Memorial Fund. Malcolm is quick and on point to recognize the impact of this culture on men and other genders too. He underlines the importance of not winning but rather being resilient meaning adjusting, adapting, and being productive in new environments. That resilience, perhaps, should be foundational in our education. Back to our search to feel competent and valued. If a loss means a lack of value, then that creature of overshame can appear and lead to a major destabilization, a major weakening of our sense of resilience. But if you're defined, if your core is being defined by by winning and losing, which sports easily can tend to cultivate, then we're in real trouble whenever there's a loss. And the whole concept of being a loser has major impact in our culture at this time. Um, but it underneath it is that lovely striving to be competent and to be seen as valuable. And if we can get those out in the open and identify the many ways that people can be competent, and for the many genders that we're now finally becoming aware of, uh, these things get much more complicated. But still the idea that you need to know that there will be continuing identity crises, but that you can learn to cope with and face up to, those are some of the things that uh, uh, I think can, can help boys break out of, uh, as Tony Porter says, break out of the man box, which keeps boys and men tightly isolated. Dr. Malcolm Ashley on elements of his loved to death workshops that he's trying to get into middle and high schools to help prevent the kind of teen breakup violence that resulted in the murder of his own teen daughter, Lauren Dunn Astley. More from that moving episode produced by our Yamini Ranjan. It was the July episode in our 2022 season. Find the full hour at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. 
Our March 2022 episode dove into how the spreading of misinformation and disinformation over media platforms can fan the flames of conflict and polarization in our world. Correspondent Danielle Price anchored our discussion, which included conversation with Dr. Michael Bonk-Peterson, a professor of political science in Denmark. I think one of the key things to remember is that uh, people have always been trying to influence each other with information uh, to change the way that other people think about certain issues uh, in, in a way that is aligned with one's own interests. That sometimes involves not telling the complete truth, choosing which facts to convey, or or even to outright lie. This has been very well documented in the context of, of some of the most horrific uh, events in, in human history, such as ethnic massacres. You will almost never have a horrific event like an ethnic massacre without a preceding period of intense rumor circulation. And most of that stuff that is being circulated is is completely untrue, but serves the purpose of mobilizing the group against uh, the presumed enemy. So this idea about using information to mobilize your group against some target, that's just the way we humans act in conflicts. And of course, that is then something that is now in the age of social media, even more widespread and, and presumably also something that that you can do more effectively. So does it mean that, um, have we evolved to be more likely to believe false information? In many situations, it's a very, very bad evolutionary idea to not have an accurate representation of how the world works. A lot of the problems that we're facing are social problems. And when it comes to social problems, it's not always clear that it is important for you to have accurate representations of the world. What is really helpful for you is often if the other person or the other persons who are involved think of you as better than you are, as stronger than you are. And your job in like strategic social interaction is to provide information that will create these slight misrepresentations in the social situation. And what research suggests is that often you might actually be better at persuading others if you believe in the misinformation yourself. It's commonly understood that people believe in false information just because of ignorance or not being well informed. Does it mean that that's not a very good explanation? If we turn our focus to what you do with misinformation, so the extent to which you share misinformation, then uh, ignorance plays a very, very little role. In fact, in the research that we have been doing on uh, on the circulation of fake news on, on Twitter, we can see that the, that the users, the Twitter users who share more fake news, they are in fact more knowledgeable. They know more about politics than, than the average uh, Twitter user. What, what is really uh, the, the identifying feature of these people is an intense hatred towards the other political party. The, the people who are doing the sharing of fake news, it's not because that they're ignorant. It is because they are selectively and strategically trying to find information that they can use to denigrate uh, their opponents. So I think a lot of people listening might be a bit skeptical that the, the platforms themselves and these tech giants are very motivated to, to take quick action. Hmm. In the meantime... What can regular people do to combat this type of misinformation in our daily lives? There is a lot of good uh, evidence that that you can actually learn to identify misinformation uh, relatively uh, easy. 
uh, something that we've been working on in my research team is to look look at at videos from fact checkers like to what extent uh, can like a crash course in three minutes help you identify uh, misinformation and that actually seems to be the case but i also think that what you can do as an individual user is also to think about what your what is your own motivations for sharing uh, a particular piece of information on social media. We also need to look inside ourselves and and think about how, how do we deal with information? Because you could say that information that sort of fits your worldview will, will make all the reward centers in your brain light up in the same way as they will light up when you eat a candy bar. And, and just as we need to manage uh, our, our own relationship to calories, we also need to manage our own relationship to information and only spend our attention and time on the type of information that really uh, matters. And, and my final uh, advice, again, for the, for the individual user, and it's important for me to say that when I talk about the, what, what you as an individual can do, that doesn't mean that, that it, it ought to be your own responsibility to all, do all those things, but it's just to a large extent, it is up to you until we get tech giants uh, to do more. And also do not think that the hateful comments you receive is a reflection of what most people think. The people who are discussing, for example, politics online are the most angry, frustrated people. They really want to assert dominance. So don't engage with the troll, I think is also pretty important. And don't be afraid of using the tools that you have available, such as reporting, blocking, and muting. From Aarhus University in Denmark, political science prof Dr. Michael Bank-Peterson in conversation with our Danielle Price in her Peace Talks radio episode on how we might resolve the impact of misinformation and disinformation on world peace. It was our March 2022 show, and you can hear the full hour at peacetalksradio.com, peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, spotlighting episodes in the 2022 season of our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. From our June 2022 episode, we sample now guest correspondent Avishai Artsy's chat with Shatil Trunvold, professor of peace and conflict studies at Oslo's new university college, about some recent controversial picks by the Nobel Prize Committee for the annual Nobel Peace Prize. Several instances in the near past of Nobel laureates who, after receiving the prize, wandered into conflict-ridden terrain by their actions that in a couple of cases had the committee issue a rare rebuke to their own picks for the prize later. Mr. Turnvall has suggested that changes be made in the committee's makeup to help improve the Nobel Prize process. These are all Norwegians, basically from the same background, the same uh, social elite with the same upbringing and the same perceptions of life and of politics and foreign policy. So we do see a very strong bias towards, if I may say, white European American male laureates. A very high overrepresentation of American uh, laureates, for instance, considering the potential candidates all around the world. So that is influencing, and of course, what they feel as relevant from a Nordic, Norwegian, social democratic worldview influences who should receive the prize. 
Can you recount some of the other prize recipients that were controversial either at the time that they were given the prize or afterwards when it came out that maybe they weren't working for peace as much as the prize committee hoped they would? Well, the most controversial one, which had been discussed also more recently, was the prize to Aung San Suu Kyi from Myanmar. When the prize was given, it was not that much controversy. He had been in house arrest for, for years and years, representing the civil opposition to the military junta in Myanmar. But later on, when she was released and became part of the government and head of the government, her government undertook or continued what has been termed then as a genocidal campaign against the Rohingya people of Myanmar, the small minority. That was the first time when that took place and again when international criticism were directed towards the committee for keeping quiet on um, the atrocities undertaken by a former laureate they were forced to come out and comment upon that in public. There are controversial prizes to Middle Eastern politicians, Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, for instance, in his endeavor together with the Israeli prime ministers to create the peace in, in Palestine, Israel. Laureates in the, during the Vietnam War, for instance, uh, were controversial. So there, there are a number of prizes which have created reactions based on context of war and so-called peace processes. But there are different categories. What is interesting to see is that the committee over the last couple of decades has moved away from the more classic awarding of a peace process or engagement to broadening the definition of what the price is about or what peace is about. Climate and environmental politics has been awarded more general freedom of expression and human rights concerns have been awarded. So it is a watering out of the more stricter definition of a peace process or de-armament as uh, the testament of Nobel wanted the prize to be granted on to the prize itself. Finally, would you say the Nobel Peace Prize has had a mostly positive, negative, or neutral impact in promoting peacemaking around the world? I would certainly say it has a positive impact. It is a very, very important prize as it put focuses on areas of concern. It is a positive prize, and I think the committee should be praised for continuously making it relevant. The thing I wanted to see is again reflecting upon the very narrow representation in the committee, all being Norwegians, all coming from the same social strata, all having more or less the same educational background and the same worldview. I would have recommended a much more internationalized committee where you can bring in different perspectives from different cultural uh, and political contexts into the committee, which might have balanced more some of the discussions and some of the laureates uh, being awarded. Dr. Shatil Trunvol there, a professor of peace and conflict studies at Oslo's new university college, on improving the Nobel Peace Prize selection process. 
He was in conversation with our guest correspondent, Avishai Artsy, which aired as our June 2022 episode. Find the full hour at peacetalksradio.com. Once there, click on Peace Talks Episodes on the homepage, then the year 2022, and the June episode. That's how you can find the full shows we've pulled clips from for today's presentation. Which moves on now to our first episode of that season in January of 2022. Guest Jonathan Miller talked with several people in the Cities of Asylum program, which offers refuge to artists, writers, human rights defenders, and journalists whose work in their home countries put them at risk for imprisonment or death for their critiques of abusive government policies. Jonathan, who also volunteers with the City of Asylum program in his home of Ithaca, New York, talked with Pedro X. Molina, a Nicaraguan cartoonist who fled with his family to the U.S. during a violent crackdown on dissent in his home country. The situation for independent journalists in Nicaragua is way much worse right now than when I had to leave. So fewer people are talking inside Nicaragua about what is happening down there. Everybody is in fear that they can be put in jail. So the people really, really want to keep themselves informed. And uh, we have found out that we are important for that reason. So you came here as a person in your 40s with a family, two kids, two boys, a wife. Uh, You had a home, you had a car, you had a job, you had a life. You arrive here and you really have nothing. But I suppose the fact that there were people here who were prepared to help you was important. Yeah, and and I can tell you, um, if I didn't have the help of these many institutions and people, I would have stopped doing cartoons. Just to think about that, it's so depressing for me because uh, that means that you are kind of, uh, you know, what are you then? What are you useful for if you can't do what you are good at? Many of the images in your cartoons are of doves and of olive branches and things that suggest that you're a peace-loving person. Can you speak to that a little bit? I come from Nicaragua, and if you know a little bit about the history of our country, then you realize that arms, that bullets are not the answer, never. We, we had a right-wing dictatorship for 40 years in my country. Then there was an armed revolution, all right? That revolution overthrew the dictatorship and then ended up in becoming another dictatorship. There are thousands, thousands of deaths in my country because of revolutions and civil war and everything. And they haven't solved anything. We are on the same spot we were. 60 years ago, 70 years ago. So this is something that I have learned the hard way as a Nicaraguan. Weapons are not the solution. And then when I say this, people ask me, then what is the solution? I don't know. We have to find a new one and we have to find it all together. We have to learn new ways to deal with our problems without having to use guns. And, and I must say that we have a whole generation in Nicaragua that understood that because when the protests began in 2018, you will not see violence from the side of the people. So people really understood that they wanted to make a change in a civic way. And we still believe in that. When you left your country, you became an exile. Did you feel then like you became part of a larger world of 
people in exile all over the world who've fled other places? Or oh yeah, yeah. Every every time that you get to talk, not just with another Nicaraguan, but with people from Myanmar or or people from Russia or people from Chile who had to left Chile many many years ago, or for Cuba or for countries around the world, we all share kind of the same story, right? Cubans know exactly how we feel. You understand, you know, what they were dealing with, and you empathize with that, and you find out that dictatorships are the same things all over the world. Authoritarianism is the same all over the world. It doesn't matter language. It doesn't matter ideology. You may be forced to leave your country because there is a dictatorship right-wing dictatorship or a left-wing dictatorship and in the end you realize that they are both the same thing you know the, the the biggest thing and the most important thing is that we are all humans and we should focus about the rights for all humans in general and when those rights are not granted or they are abused then we have to to learn how to deal with that but all together Political cartoonist from Nicaragua, Pedro X. Molina, living in New York State thanks to an asylum program known as Cities of Asylum, so that he can still get his cartoons published back in his home country during the ongoing crackdown on dissent by the Nicaraguan government. Molina was interviewed by our guest reporter and friend Jonathan Miller, whose full episode for us in January 2022 further explored those programs that offer artists, writers, human rights defenders, and journalists from conflict-ridden regions of the world a chance to still work for peace through their art from safe remote locations in the U.S. and other countries. Find the full hour on the subject at peacetalksradio.com. Again, that one was our January 2022 show. We bounce over to our April 2022 episode now, one that featured our correspondent Senjan hosting several interviews, helping one and all learn how to better ally with members of our Asian community, especially during recent times when Asians have been targeted for harassment and violence in some places. In this sample from the program, Sen spoke with Iris Chen, Chinese-American author of the book Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent topic of immigrant meritocracy came up in the conversation. You touched on this other notion of model minority and this myth of meritocracy where the idea claims to equalize people, to give equal opportunity to people who work hard. And as long as you work hard, then you merit the opportunities that you get and you merit success and you merit a better life for yourself and your loved ones. But what you say in the book is that it's a myth. Can you speak a little bit about why is it a myth and where does this idea of meritocracy come from? It's very much rooted in the myth of America, where people feel like they can come to America and make a life for themselves and like a rags to riches story. That's a fantasy of America, the American dream. But I think what that ignores is all the systemic injustice that is embedded in the the systems and the government of America, where certain people are allowed to rise in rank and to succeed, and other groups really struggle. So those who make it believe that they have done it based on their own merit, without realizing that there are so many policies, 
so many systems in place that actually support them in doing so. Buying into the myth of the model minority makes us unaware or where we ignore the realities of the injustices in the system. And we end up upholding these unjust systems, whether or not that's applying for jobs or whether it's applying for universities or all those things. We feel like these systems are fair instead of recognizing that they are not, that injustice is implicit in the system and really challenging that false belief that their objective. One other cornerstone of the Chinese value system is chiku, eating bitterness, which is my personal favorite because it's the one that was told to me most often as a child that I had to chuku. Everyone has to chuku. Everyone mm. needs to eat bitterness and eating bitterness is what builds character. It helps you to become a strong, responsible person. I would love to hear your thoughts on why this value exists in Asian cultures, why it's so important. Is ways that the generations before us have learned how to survive in a harsh world where there was famine, where there was war, where there was oppression, and just this acceptance and this resilience, this ability to survive and to eat suffering, to eat bitterness, so that you can continue on. And just thinking about all the suffering that my grandparents had to endure and my own parents. And because of their ability to eat bitterness, I am where I am today. I can honor it and value it for what it is, but then see that I need to move on from there too. Because what this idea of eating bitterness does to us is it doesn't allow us to have compassion for ourselves or others who are suffering. Because if we just normalize suffering so much, then we don't feel any motivation to help change the suffering of others or to validate when others suffer. Because if they're suffering, we're like, that's just the way life is, you know? I think it's something that I can honor and have understanding for and have compassion for and yet learn how to deal with my own suffering with more wholeness, more wholeheartedness, where I allow myself to feel, I allow myself to weep and to grieve, to feel depression, to feel lonely, all these things, and to find strength in the feeling instead of strength in the not feeling. I mean, imagine how much courage it actually takes to be vulnerable. That's actually such a huge sign of strength where we just know that our love and our worth is grounded enough where we can show our weakness to other people and not feel so threatened and not feel so insecure. It's because I know that I am loved and worthy, that I do know that I have something to offer the world, not from a place of I don't know if I'm worthy and I have to do all these things in order to earn my worthiness. I do believe that all of us have something to offer the world and it doesn't have to look in those typical superhuman ways, but just us being ourselves is such a gift. And if we could all realize how amazing we are and come from that place of just rootedness in our deity in some ways, in the God-likeness in all of us, that's where the power comes from. And again, that's not based on our performance. It's just who we are. Iris Chen, author of the book Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent, in part of a conversation with our correspondent Sanjan in our April 2022 Peace Talks Radio episode called Seeking Harmony for Global Asian Immigrants. 
There were several enlightening interviews in that show. You can hear it all at peacetalksradio.com. Click on Peace Talks Episodes from the homepage, then 2022, and then look into the April listing. I'm Paul Ingalls, Peace Talks Radio Series producer and co-founder. We're sampling some highlights from our 2022 season on this special show. That season included an episode that explored the concept of anarcho-pacifism, a term that blends elements of anarchy, that's organized social and political protest against oppression, with pacifist values that all are created equal and deserve basic rights and protection from overt government oppression. Our co-founder Suzanne Kreider interviewed Dr. Nehal Patel, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. He studies how the life of India freedom icon Mahatma Gandhi offers a roadmap to effective anarcho-pacifism. Part of what I wrote in, a, in another article called Gandhi's Prophecy, which was about the idea of corporate social responsibility, is uh, this idea that a business environment, which is for profit only, it drifts away from the idea of Sarvodaya, it drifts away from the welfare of all. And to be able to create a world in which private entities also have a sense of that welfare of all in its practices is embodied uh, in something called Gandhi's theory of trusteeship. Gandhi had an idea of trusteeship that entailed the idea that all property, or in other words, all wealth that is claimed to be owned by an individual person is actually held for the benefit of society. And it's, it's very tied to the idea that the world around us is a deeply interconnected place, that we all are connected and influence each other. And the idea of drawing a bright line between what I own and what you own can make us forget about the ways that we're all connected and our behavior is influencing one another. And Gandhi's theory of trusteeship pulls us back to that recognition that we do have these impacts on each other. And when we reorient ourselves to thinking about the fact that our actions, our decisions, especially in regards to things like resource extraction, are going to have an influence on the environment and the people surrounding that area, as well as people and environments far away, since the earth is very much an interconnected uh, system of ecosystems. Then we start to consider more than the, the simple uh, pursuit of profit, or what is the bottom line here? How much money are we going to make here? We begin to have to implement ways of extracting resources or ways of growing a company that integrate those considerations into our calculus. Dr. Patel, you teach at the University of Michigan Dearborn, and you've applied non-Western principles in classrooms. The idea is to promote empathy as a learning outcome. So tell us about some of the solutions and non-Western principles that you've used, and how does that promote nonviolence? One of the doctrines that was uh, important to Gandhi, but, but also has been very important in my own life, is a doctrine that usually is associated with the Jain school of thought, and it's called the doctrine of Anakantavad. Anakantavad 
can be thought of the, as meaning no one way. There's no one way to perceive a situation. And so one of the things that compelled me when I became a teacher was that I wanted our students to be able to walk away from class feeling that sense that there, there isn't a one way to perceive something. Even if we're both looking at an apple, if you and I are sitting at a table together and there's an apple in the middle of the table, it might look dark and dull to me, but it might look bright and shiny to you because maybe the sun is shining behind you and it's illuminating that side of the apple. And so we don't even experience that apple in the same way. And I think one of the powerful things about that doctrine is that it's constantly reminding us that if we're listening to each other, very if we're deep, listening deeply to each other especially, then we can understand why we each experience life or experience the world differently. And it, it allows us to have a gateway into being, as a result, hopefully more empathetic and more compassionate to one another. And that can help us to uh, move toward a more nonviolent world. Dr. Nahal Patel, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, speaking with our host Suzanne Kreider about Mahatma Gandhi and a tradition of what some call anarcho-pacifism as a way to transform societal oppression into a more peaceful society. You can hear more from that interview and another Suzanne conducted for the program at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our February 2022 episode there. Conflict over migration policies has been a constant for decades, centuries you could say. 2022, no exception, as refugees from war and oppression sought asylum in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere. Our correspondent Priyanka Shankar talked with several people on the front lines of trying to promote humane migration programs around the world. Looking for examples of best practices, Priyanka spoke with Vasco Malta, head of the UN's International Organization for Migration in Portugal. People tend to say that Portugal uh, is seen as a country where uh, integration policies of migrants are a success. And I honestly believe that uh, the fact that all Portuguese system is built up to promote the participation of migrants in the decisions that affect them allowed Portugal to have a very sustainable system. But that's not the only reason. There are other reasons behind this alleged success uh, of Portugal uh, on migration policies. Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, there is a migration history of the country. So there is reciprocity as a principle since we have in Portugal uh, uh, more or less four to five million Portuguese living abroad. So if you have people living abroad and you are a migrant, you know how it is to be a migrant. Also, and, and this is also very important to highlight, is that somehow there is a very strong political consensus, meaning that the benefits of immigration are almost clearly perceived for almost all political parties. I could say that the benefits of the immigration are still very clearly perceived, especially because according to different uh, barometers, for example, the last one that I remember, uh, only 3% of the Portuguese population considered immigration as a problem, as an issue. 
Finally, two other reasons behind this alleged success is the fact that in Portugal, there is a interministerial coordination of the topic uh, of migration with the clear leadership on the integration agenda. So meaning that the politics and the government in Portugal, it's focused uh, when we talk about the migrants on their integration. And that's also very important. And of course, finally, there are a lot of partnerships and multi-level governance, meaning that immigrant associations and also municipalities are always part of the solution. Uh, normally the, the local delivers of the national frame, framework on the integration of migrants. So the combination of all these factors, uh, I would believe is the reason behind the success of Portugal in the integration of, of migrants. Europe is a safe haven for many people fleeing conflict from the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe, and even Central America. Often countries like Greece, Italy, and Spain become the recipient countries because of their geographical location next to water bodies, because it's easier for migrants to enter these places through sea and also from land and air. Does Portugal help these countries accommodate everyone who needs asylum? Since 2015, uh, Portugal has responded to the migration flows in Europe with solidarity. So, be clear, Portugal has upheld its political commitment to responsibility sharing and, of course, proactively contributing to intra-EU solidarity uh, in Europe. The fact is that until two years ago, Portugal had for many, many years a negative migratory balance, meaning that there was always more Portuguese going abroad than migrants coming in. This fact combined with, I already mentioned, uh, the circumstances that Portugal is the third country in the in the EU with the highest percentage of the, of, of the people with more than 65 years old, somehow alerted to the Portuguese authorities for, I would say, a dark scenario in the years to come. To be clear, uh, this migratory balance has stopped in 2018 and 19, showing, of course, that Portugal started to receive new immigration flows and became a more attractive destination for foreigners. And at the same time, uh, the economic growth fostered Portuguese to stay. So this is somehow a background that may explain what Portugal did so far. I would say that Portugal has shown solidarity and I believe that this should be seen as an example to other EU countries to do the same. Vasco Malta, head of the UN's International Organization for Migration in Portugal, with our Priyanka Shankar. Listen for more in our episode Making Peace with Migration at peacetalksradio.com. That's our May 2022 show for that season. 2022 was another in a series of tumultuous years of difficult news to absorb, with more media platforms than ever delivering the often harrowing news to our personal smartphones 24-7, 365 days a year. In that environment, researchers are finding evidence of news burnout, causing measurable increases in our anxiety. Our Danielle Price looked into it with several interviews for our October 2022 show, including a visit with NPR media critic Eric Deggins. While we're also living in a time where there have been some singularly troubling events, we also live in a media culture that constantly brings this stuff to your doorstep every minute of every day. 
And, and so we're more impacted by it. You know, we're more aware of it. I think uh, one of the things that strikes me about, say, a media consumer in the 1960s, you know, you'd watch the evening news, you'd read the newspaper, but you didn't have a constant barrage of news updates telling you about the worst things that were happening in the world at that moment all the time. And that's what we have now. And I don't think we have fully realized or grappled with the implications of that and what it does to people, how it traumatizes them and how it changes their perception of the world, that changes their perception of the news it changes their perception of society and the world. I mean, I'm a news junkie. I love Twitter. And even I feel sometimes like I just want to scroll past some things and just like not engage in upsetting news all the time. But as individuals, like, is it wrong to do this? You know, if someone feels that their mental health is affected, is it okay sometimes to just say, I don't want to know right now? Oh, you absolutely have to consume media responsibly and intentionally. You absolutely have to do that. Cable news in particular, and the way cable TV news works, is that it is constantly trying to engage you by using conflict and by using fear to get you to pay attention. So when you put on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC in the background while you're at work, you're getting this constant barrage of fear and conflict that you don't even realize is agitating you. And then uh, you know, you get to the end of the day and you feel like crap about how the world is. And so, uh, you know, I was constantly telling people when the pandemic was first kicking off and people, you know, were glued to the TV set. You know, I, w I was just constantly saying, you know, dip in until you know, until you feel like you know what's going on and then stop watching it because it's damaging and you have to uh, learn to limit your exposure to um, that kind of agitation. Otherwise, you'll walk around sort of depressed about the state of the world and you won't understand why you feel that way. The other thing I constantly tell people is that if you think back in history, if you think back to the 1960s, in the 1960s, we had the Bay of Pigs invasion where, um, you know, we almost had nuclear war with the Soviet Union. We had the assassination of a president. We had the assassination of a major civil rights leader in Martin Luther King Jr. We had the assassination of another major civil rights leader in Malcolm X. We had the assassination of RFK when he was running for president. And we had the Vietnam War going on. And we had riots in American cities over civil rights issues. All of that was happening in the 1960s. And as bad as things are for us today, we, we have not had four major American figures in politics and civil rights killed within 10 years of each other. There have been points in America where the news, the daily news has been much worse. It's been much more calamitous. It seemed much more like America was about to go off the rails, but the nation didn't have this pervasive sense that everything was, you know, declining the way it does now because we didn't have this 24-7 news and media structure constantly bringing the worst of what was happening in the day to our doorstep every day. And so I find it troubling and surprising that people are looking at what's happening now and they're like, oh my God, it's never been worse. And I'm like, Really? I mean, that's the other thing. We, we have this media that's delivering all this material to us. And then we have we have an American public that is ignorant of history. 
you know, some of this is a matter of perspective and some of this is a matter of understanding history. And some of this is a matter of grappling with the effect of our media structure on us and the ways in which it's a, it's encouraging America to kind of eat itself in a way that is horrifying. I mean, one of the things that I think people want is they want an e- they want a quick solution and they want a quick solution that can be implemented by a decisive leader or a, a company changing what it does or an industry deciding to change. And I, I don't think that's what's going to solve a lot of our problems with media. What's going to solve a lot of our problems with media is if the audience changes. Um, people have to choose to reject that stuff. NPR's Eric Deggins with our Danielle Price from our October 2022 show called Making Peace with News Anxiety. Find her full interview with Eric and others at peacetalksradio.com. You can also hear our November 2022 episode, which asked, what can we do to coexist more peacefully with wildlife? As humans, encroaching more on wildlife habitats, we're brought into close and sometimes threatening contact with bears, wolves, crocs, snakes, and others. Our Priyanka Shankar connected with several folks on the subject, including Paula Pebsworth, a primatologist who lives in Texas and who says that it's we humans who have to shoulder much of the blame. You know, these shared resources that we are are using. And so oftentimes they become shared because we've cut down uh, forests. So there's deforestation. Um, that is a cause of conflict. You know, how we dispose of our trash is a conflict. That's what draws um, humans and primates into the same space. And in a perfect world, I mean, I love them and I would move to a space where I could observe them and see them in their natural habitat. But for wildlife, it is always best if our home ranges don't overlap, that humans have their space and wildlife has their space. When our home ranges, I'll say, overlap, is when they often become injured. When animals are coming into human spaces, they're often hit by cars, they're shot by people, they're persecuted. All of these negative interactions occur. There's really very few positive interactions when our home ranges overlap. I know that people do enjoy spending time with them and seeing them. And I think that we can find places where we can do that unobtrusively. But gosh, you know, for them to be in an urban setting or at the urban edge, it's very, very detrimental to them. I find the aspect of language used in conflict mediation really interesting because it can play a role in firing conflicts further or mitigating them entirely. So what sort of language should conservationists, researchers or even all of us when we talk about human wildlife conflicts use? If we use neutral terms, which is absolutely what it is, they're just being animals. They're foraging, they're eating, they're not pirates. I do laugh because it's just like, I know that their job is to sell newspapers or their job is to sell their article. And so they use uh, terms that are eye-catching or make someone want to read that article. But I think that when I was talking before about a holistic approach, where we modify human behavior, that is one aspect of human behavior that I would like to um, modify. 
How do we view wildlife behavior? What is it that they're doing? And they're just being animals. And so we sort of shift the focus about, oh, you know, it's not about us. It's not about what they're doing to us. They're living their own lives as best they can. And so I do think that journalists have a responsibility to report things accurately and help. Besides using the right terms and narratives, how should policies be shaped to mitigate the conflict? Do you feel policymakers have started doing a good job or is it still being ignored with respect to finding better solutions to mitigate human-wildlife conflicts? You know what happens is like you have conflict, it gets a little worse, it gets a little worse, and it gets a little worse, and you don't do anything about it until it's a crisis. And then it's, you know, all hands on deck and we need to 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 face this problem. That's human nature. But there are lots of countries that are doing good work around the world. And I'm just going to point out uh, one is Hong Kong. I know that they are a small country, but what they've done in terms of like a multi-pronged approach, they've got an overabundant population of primates. And India has done the same thing where instead of culling animals, that you reduce their fertility. And so it's, an, it's expensive um, to start you know, doing tubectomies or vasectomies on primates, um, but that's what they're doing. There are other countries doing the same, like Thailand. Uh, so Japan, they look at the situation and they're thinking about these various mitigation strategies. They're also including education and awareness. It's critical. And it's really critical for us to work with children. And so at an early age, you know, how they learn to behave around monkeys or how they other wildlife, how they can be respectful of their space. When I was doing my postdoc in India, we went into the schools and the children were having problems because on their way to school, the monkeys were stealing their lunches. And, you know, monkeys are very smart and um, they see children as like, I don't know, like almost um, a good person that they could take from because of their stature. And so, you know, you work with them. That's Paula Pebsworth, a primatologist in Texas, with our Priyanka Shankar in our episode called Seeking Peaceful Coexistence with Wildlife. More from that episode and more from all of our episodes going back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where we invite you to learn more about our decades-long effort to preserve some of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution here at Peace Talks Radio. Thanks to many of you whose contributions, both to our own independent nonprofit and to your local public media outlets, have sustained us for many years now. We'll continue to appreciate your support. Go to peacetalksradio.com to look for that donate button for us and do so at the website for your own public media outlet as well. For our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, and our whole Peace Talks Radio team, thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.